Welcome, everybody. Today is August 1st, 2008. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and I am so glad to have all of you here today to talk with Dr. Fran Kendall, who is currently at the Department of Human Genetics at Emory University in Atlanta. And Dr. Kendall has been interested in and helping mitochondrial disease patients for a long time, and I would say that she's one of the leaders in the field because of her history in this area. And also, I think that it's worth noting that Dr. Kendall has a perspective about the diagnostic process as well as the long-term um, follow-up and support of the patient with mitochondrial disease. And, and Fran, I'll certainly let you give yourself a little bit more of an introduction. Sure. And then we'll start to talk about our topic today, which is creatine and CoQ10, and particularly um, interesting effects about dosing and side effects and use as part of the mito cocktail. So, um, Dr. Kendall, would you do yourself a, a better service than I did in introducing yourself, and uh, and then we can get started talking about our topic today. Sure. Thank you, Christy. Um, as she indicated, um, as much as I hate to admit it, I've been doing this for a while now. Um, I did my training um, up in Christy's neck of the woods at Boston Children's, and I was on staff there after my fellowship for a number of years, and I started the um, the Mitochondrial Disorders Program there at Boston Children's, which is still in existence and now is being run by Basil Derricks, one of the neurologists, my previous partner, Mark Corson, who also does mitochondrial diseases at New England Medical Center. Um, I came to Atlanta a decade ago where um, I was in private practice for a while and recently went back to academia, but throughout that period of time, I have been... Um, taking care of patients with mitochondrial disease from both a clinical perspective um, as well as a diagnostic perspective. And that diagnostic perspective includes laboratory diagnosis and, and the understanding of, um, of the, the assays and the molecular analysis of, of um, these various patients. So having said that, I'm coming um, to this discussion about um, CoQ and creatine, not so much as um, some expert in CoQ or creatine, but really in my personal experience as a biochemical geneticist with 18 years of experience taking care of patients and, and, um, and particularly did some work with this in my private practice uh, last year ago in regards to creatine and CoQ. And again, I just want to preface this uh, to say that this is my personal experience. Other clinicians may have some other experience, and I certainly don't um, claim to know all the answers about these various supplements. But um, nonetheless, I'll give you my two cents in, in that regard. Now, in, in terms of coenzyme Q10, um, Probably everybody who's who's listening is familiar with that particular compound. Coenzyme Q, uh, Q10 is a cofactor in the mitochondrial electron transport chain and is an antioxidant. So as a component of this system, um, it's been long supplementation with CoQ has long been used to um, to treat patients with mitochondrial disease. Now, if you look at the UNDF website or, so, or probably even the mito.org um, um, website as well, there may be some information about um, doses. And most people traditionally will use 5 to 15 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Um, and there's been a lot of information in the last couple years about the use of higher-dose CoQ um, in not only mitochondrial disease, but in other disorders that seem to have secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. 
Um, I want to relay the results of one of those recent studies and then talk to you a little bit about the high-dose uh, CoQ that we were using and some of the things that I was finding with it. Um, there was a study that um, the information was presented at the recent Academy of Neurology meeting in Chicago this spring, um, where 19 centers um, we're doing a collaborative study looking at the use of coenzyme Q10 in high dose in um, ALS. So it's a, another disorder that is a neurodegenerative disorder and has um, secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. And folks were using up to 2,700 milligrams per day um, in 185 patients, and the overall uh, conclusion of the study was that there was no improvement. Um, so that is one of the more recent studies in terms of using very high-dose CoQ. Um, I started to use similar doses, not so much 2,700, but between 1 and 2 grams with adults and children, um, between 500 to 800 milligrams a day um, of the high-dose CoQ. And we were using the Tishcon brand of that purely based on its um, apparent better absorption. And I did see that when I looked at CoQ level, um, milligram per milligram, one brand versus another, it did see a higher dosage with Tichcon, but whether that translates into improved um, efficacy of the electron transport chain for a given patient is not clear to me. Um, but having said that, um, that's what, um, what I did, and so measured levels. Um, so again, we saw that there was a greater blood level in leukocyte CoQ values, particularly with the Tishcon brand, particularly with high-dose CoQ. In terms of clinical improvement, um, as most of you know, it's often difficult to determine that, particularly when you're looking in the context of an underlying disorder that may be deteriorating in a given patient. So if they're stable or not stable, sometimes it's hard to determine whether or not the compound that you are providing them has direct um, impact on that. Um, but we did see some improvements, I would say mild, on a rare occasion moderate improvements in um, focusing um, hypotonia, weakness, um, and, and fatigability in patients, mitochondrial patients with any number of complex and or molecular diagnoses with the use of higher dose CoQ. This was um, supported by the use of resting metabolic rates as well as um, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, the latter in patients 13 years of age and older. Um, baseline before CoQ therapy, we found that most patients, probably 70 to 80 percent, had some detectable abnormality. And remember, these studies are a non-invasive way of looking at overall body's ability to take oxygen and convert it into energy. Um, so it's kind of a rough assessment of that without doing invasive studies. So most patients did improve often normalizing on, um, on CoQ um, with these studies. However, as I increased doses, there did not appear to be any change in these resting metabolic rates or CPET tests. And as a matter of fact, often the use of any supplemental CoQ typically normalize them. So while it just proved to me that CoQ does indeed do something intracellularly. I didn't have any specific proof that the higher dose particularly translated into anything um, more than just general 
um, improvement to some degree. Um, the other problem or issue that I ran into was a subset of patients on these higher doses, and it was probably 10 to 20 percent, developed elevated CPK levels. CPK is a muscle enzyme, um, and we use it as a monitoring purpose um, for individuals with muscle disease. Now, the CPK elevations were not markedly elevated, meaning normal was about 190 to 200, depending on the lab, and I would see them 250, sometimes up to 300. Um, and when the dose was either lowered or, in some cases, uh, markedly lowered or discontinued, the CPK level um, resolved, the elevation resolved. The etiology is not known. It's not reported anywhere. I've spoken to other colleagues, um, and they have not seen any elevated CPK levels with CoQ, but a lot of them are not doing very, very high-dose CoQ. So overall, um, CoQ certainly does seem to show some intracellular and clinical improvement in patients. I would say it's probably mild, in some cases moderate. All, um, more is not necessarily better in all patients. Um, in most kids, I'm using more like 20 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, and for adults, 1,000 milligrams to 2,000 milligrams, um, sometimes lower depending on the patient. And they're being monitored closely for CPK elevations and other changes. The other yes. Dr. Kendall, sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to ask you to elaborate a little bit more for the um, non-medical folks about CPK and what a high indicate what a increased CPK level might mean in terms of muscle wasting. Sure. Let's uh, elaborate a little more. About sure. A CPK, again, CPK is a muscle enzyme, and it, it's leaked out into the, you know, you can detect it in the blood. You can detect it normally in the blood, but um, it will increase in cases that are reflective of muscle damage. So in, in actuality, what the CoQ is attempting to do in some cases, it was certainly causing muscle damage instead. Um, again, not significant, but certainly it was um, of concern and enough to to investigate it a little bit more. And especially with some of the adults, I had one adult who did a beautiful study on himself. Um, he do, he had some, you know, he brought in flow sheets where he showed, you know, based on his doses and then all of his lab values at certain dosage, and it was very clear that on the hot dose cue he had developed the, the elevated CCK levels. Does that, does that address yes, that? That's, Chris? that's great. I just wanted to clarify for everybody who might not. Could I ask you know. one? Is the elevated CPK somehow um, uh, visibly tangible in symptoms, or is that something that's only measurable in the blood? It's, it's typically low levels like that are typically only measurable in the blood. I mean, markedly elevated CPK levels in the thousands um, because it's associated with muscle breakdown can be associated with muscle pain and weakness, and then your urine can be Coca-Cola co uh, colors because of the breakdown of the muscle. But typically those mild elevations um, are not detectable from a clinical perspective, although I did have one kid who it looked like she was having, she was, she's averable, so it was hard to tell, but she seemed to have what her, the best as her parents could indicate were muscle pains. And when we decreased her dose, that did that did improve. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, and some of the other, you know, standard side effects that folks may or may not be aware of with CoQ are things like um, headache, um, heartburn, 
I came across one report of a very high dose um, use of CoQ, and I didn't, I couldn't find the, the original reference. Um, it didn't really indicate what it was, but it was on a reputable website, um, the, the American Cancer Society, because they were talking about the use of CoQ and cancer therapy. It's a very high dose indicating involuntary muscle movement. So, um, and, the, and the thing I have seen is insomnia. So I, I do recommend that for patients that um, they don't take their doses at night, um, like after dinner, before they go to bed, because they may run into sleeping issues. Is the dose taken all at once, or do you have people break it up, or... Some people break it up. CoQ is one of those things that you don't necessarily have to give in divided doses. I take it every day as well. And, it, you know, for me personally, if I had to take it more than once a day, I would never take it. But the issue is that most mitochondrial patients are taking more than one thing, including carnitine. So, as it stands, they're taking it multiple times a day. So, I'd probably take it a couple of times a day, but it doesn't need to be three or four times a day. And if it's once a day, that's okay as well. Okay. Does anybody need um, me or Dr. Kendall to repeat the dosing that she said? I think that was very useful information. Yes, please. Okay, yes. so um, so Dr. Kendall, would you please repeat? You mentioned um, 20 milligrams per kilogram per children. Would you just state that again? Because I'm sure. That, um, that's important for people. Sure. I, I typically, as my kind of compromise based on what I've been seeing in the last year with some of the complications with the, the very high dose, as well as um, in some patients, I just don't seem to see anything from a clinical perspective that's different between the lower and the high dose. I, I'll typically use 20 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Now, in children. And then in children. Adults. Now, in adults, um, you know, in my my clinical experience, the adults seem to have a much harder time in terms of not only getting their levels um, elevated when you're measuring them, but just even showing any signs of clinical improvement at all. But most of the adults are um, on between 800 and 1,000 milligrams up to maybe two, uh, uh, 2,000 milligrams. Part of the problem is a lot of you folks may recognize this, it's, it becomes cost prohibitive. Right. Um, especially if you're looking at some of the, these brands, such as the Tishcon brand, which, again, does appear to be more bioavailable, but what that translates into is a whole different ballgame. Um, and is, so, is for, the Tishcon called Q-Gel? Is that what you That's one of the forms. It's on the Epic Score, numeric right. website, and they do get some discount, but it's still extremely expensive. You know, when you're and and when you're paying for all this stuff out of pocket, it certainly adds up after a while. So, Doctor Kendall, could you spell Tishcon, please? T i s c h o n. But if you're if you're looking for um, it's on the Epic E P I C for the number four Health dot com website. Thank you. Does the bioavailability of the Tishcon Mm-hmm. Make it. Um, I, I'm just thinking because we do, we use that and it is incredibly expensive. Right. And you know you can go to CVS or Kroger and get regular old CoQ10 like two for one. I mean, is it worth spending $700 a month for Tishcon versus you know maybe spending $100 a month at Kroger? Right. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, a question that's begging to be 
you know, answer. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the whole problem is that when you look at the, you know, like I said, if you look at levels, you do see that a person's blood levels are higher with that brand, but does that mean that they're doing better? Better, right. Yeah, not necessarily. Not based on the studies that I've looked at and the, the parameters we have available to us right now. At some juncture, there may be, you know. The problem with a lot of these non-FDA regulated medications or supplements is just that. They don't go through the rigorous um, review that, that the FDA makes, makes drug companies and other drugs go through. So there's a lot of unanswered questions, and people claim all sorts of things. Sure. Like one of the new things that now people keep, you know, I've heard it, Every time, you know, there's the conference in, in June, every time people go to the conference, they come back with, you know, the same question a million times. And ubiquinol is the, is the new thing I've heard. So ubiquinone is the typical CoQ that most of you are familiar with. Ubiquinol is another form of CoQ. And, again, if you look at some studies by some of these companies that produce it, it appears that for a much lower dose, like in 100 to 200 milligrams, they see your levels seem to be similar as if you were taking a 1,000 or more of CoQ. So I do have one family who switched to it because it was so prohibitive they couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford it, but what is, you know, the problem is, again, like you already know, what, what does that mean? You know, I, I do take the, the Tishcon brand myself, but I'm not taking, you know, thousands of dollars worth of it every year. And I just use it to take lower doses. But I've used the, you know, the um, Costco brand. I've gone and gotten it. It's like 35 bucks for a big bottle. I take it for migraines. I have migraines. That's why I take it. And it does help my migraines. And honestly, both forms help me personally the same. But I don't have a mitochondrial disease. So would really the only way to to see would be the blood test to check your levels? I mean, well, after yeah. doing TishCon, if you switched to Costco and then got your levels checked again. Right. Now, you would probably see that your levels are different, just like I did. But the, the question is, is that having different blood levels, does that de definitively translate into better or worse mitochondrial function? See, when I, I did some of these resting metabolic rate and other studies on people who were on Tishcon and non-Tishcon, and it didn't, it didn't seem to make any difference as long as you were on so, some CoQ. But having said that, the problem with that study is those studies is they have limitations, meaning, I, you know, one of the kids I'm thinking of, she's got severe ataxia or unsteadiness. So after she was on CoQ, her study was normal. Well, she wasn't functioning normally. So what does that mean? Right. My son has the same thing. So we have the same ataxia, and I have seen no difference in function. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the very, very high dose. Yeah, and so it's, it's you know, it becomes for me as a clinician, I try to balance all of the aspects of a family. It's not, you know, like I've said to some of the families that I follow, if it comes down to, you know, CoQ10 or food on the table, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind of a no-brainer, um, especially since if somebody could, you know, somebody can tell you without a doubt and show you got the data that, you know, it, it's going to be, the difference between life and death, life, I think most of us would just do what we had to do right. to do that. But when, you, when you've got data that doesn't show or prove definitively, and as I indicated in, earlier in the discussion about the, um, the ALS study, 
where, and there had been one previous to that, a smaller study that that was claiming that, yes, it was showing improvement. And so when a bunch of folks got together and 19 centers did a study, they showed, no, it did not. So I think, again, I do think it does something, but I think if it comes down to it and it's, it's an issue for you from a financial perspective, I, I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't feel right if you were, you know, my patient saying to you, you had to stay on a specific brand. Dr. Kendall, this is Christy. Yes, Christy. Being a fat-soluble um, supplement, would you talk a little bit about the length of time that you found that it was really needed in order for um, blood levels as well as symptoms to show a difference? Typically, what I would see is now I wouldn't see the kid. I would see the kids as I was looking at this and the adults, for that matter, you know, a little bit more closely every three months. And I would certainly see a difference in a three-month time. But from a clinical perspective, I would say most people were, if they were going to show any changes or improvements, it would be in about four to six weeks. Um, so. It's a good question because I think sometimes, you know, uh, we're used to, you know, taking things like antibiotics for, you know, strep throat, and within 24 hours we feel better. Um, so, you know, I think people need to be aware that these things are not an immediate um, fix, but that over longer periods of time, um, you know, that's when you're going to see some improvement. And, you know, I've had sub being a subpopulation, like I said, there are some some of these kids and adults, primarily the kids, who do seem to have shown, you know, a pretty, I would say at least mild on occasion, moderate improvement with the higher dose. Do you ever feel like that improvement continues to accumulate over time as the treatment, you know, continues, or once a person starts to have a consistent level of CoQ10? then their symptoms have improved and or not, and that seems to be more of the case. Yeah, that, that tends to be more the case. I mean, uh, you know, I think part of it is um, is that, and, I, and I, this is the way I've explained it to some families, you know, some individuals are, um, their energy production is so poor and their body is so stressed that it's almost like they're standing on the edge of a cliff. And they just, no matter how much CoQ, creatine, whatever you give them, it just doesn't seem to kind of pull them back from that edge. Um, and so there's, there's, there's certainly some people who do not seem to respond um, really at all in any clinical way that I can indicate or, or come, you know, identify. And then others, it's kind of like an improvement and it just kind of stays at that kind of level of improvement, not an escalating improvement, if that's if that's what your particular question but mm -hmm. answers that. Mm -hmm. okay. So thank you. And I want to speak on behalf of the group before we start to talk about creatine a bit because I think that what's obvious in how you talk, Dr. Kendall, is that um, you're helping patients to make the decision based on their needs and their family situation case by case. And, and that's um, really not only encouraging but empowering for us, the patient community, because very often I think we feel like the pressure that if if a family doesn't try to do everything possible, then, you know, that they should feel bad about that because, after all, this is, you know, what they're supposed to do for their disease. And, mm -hmm. and in this case, I hear what you're saying is that, um, you know, I think there needs to be some objectivity about 
every person and, and really take it for who that family is and what they can what they can do and, and they may or may not benefit to be right. a little bit realistic about that. Right. Um, we'll thank, so thank you. We'll have time for for more. Sorry, we'll have time for more questions, but I do want to make sure that we have a chance also to talk about creatine or creatinine. So, um, Dr. Kendall, can we segue into that a little bit? Okay. Um, creatine is another compound that um, that most of you folks have probably come across in terms of hearing about it. And creatine um, is um, inside the body is converted to phosphocreatine. And so, and what phosphocreatine does, if folks are not familiar with that, it is used to help generate energy. So ATP. You're probably all familiar with that from its precursor ADP. Um, under what we call anaerobic conditions, and that means without oxygen. So particularly in brain and muscle and tissues that need energy um, sometimes quickly, um, the, the creatine helps generate some extra energy um, in those cases. So that is wh why creatine is, um, is a compound that's, that's considered it, it all in the context of um, in the context of mitochondrial disease. Now, um, as I indicated, or as I did when I started with the CoQ, just want to mention a little bit about um, a study um, that was looking at creatine monohydrate, uh, specifically in mitochondrial patients. Um, and patients with other neuromuscular disease, and it was um, in neurology in 1999. And they, they um, in that particular case, they gave the patients 10 grams a day for five days and then five grams da daily for five days. Um, but And then they measured some body weight and hand grip and some other signs of strength before and after. Now, the problem with this particular study, from my perspective, it, it was relatively short. It was only of a couple of weeks duration. So um, while they claim that there was some improvement in those patients with various neuromuscular diseases, including mitochondrial disease, it, 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 was, it was limited. Now, um, some information I was um, reading recently in this regard um, stated that there's been a more recent study, although I scanned the, the Internet and, and the Neurology Journal and could not come up with um, the newer reference. But once again, there's just the, the, the premises that it does seem to show some improvement, um, but it seems to be more short-term studies looking at this particular compound. Um, now there are um, there are some issues with creatine in terms of um, side effects. Um, unlike CoQ, which some of the folks we've talked about in the CPK, which seems to be the most significant that I've detected, there are are more clear and documented creatine problems. Um, some of those include. Um, Include problems with diarrhea in some patients. Um, it is a salt, so it can cause dehydration, so folks need to drink lots of liquids when they do take it. Um, it should be, um, one other thing about it in terms of its, its uh, side effects is that it can cause liver dysfunction excuse me, kidney dysfunction. I looked at a number of studies, particularly surrounding the use of creatine in um, Huntington's disease, and found that, um, that the most significant thing that was determined from a kidney perspective was that kidney function tests were elevated. Um, no, 
no clinical kidney dysfunction was detected in these patients. Um, but when the dose was dropped or eliminated, the kidney functions resumed to, to normal levels. Um, but nonetheless, it's clear that it can affect kidney function. So it is something that people need to understand. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of long-term study data surrounding the use of creatine. Um, so again, um, it's, it's, you know, there are some data to support its usefulness, um, but there, there clearly are side effects and it's not clear long-term use of it. Um, there are a number of products out there. Um, the neotin form, N-E-O-T-I-N-E, um, is considered a medical grade form of it. It's 99.9% .9 pure. It's a powder. It's a monohydrate, and that's the best form to use. Um, however, I know from some families that um, that the create, this particular company runs out of the product frequently. And so families who do use it and do appear to have some improvement are always running up against having problems getting the, the compound. Um, in terms of doses uh, that I've used in my patients, for the children, I typically use about 5 grams a day. For the adults, uh, about a, a 10 grams a day as a maintenance dose in them. My clinical experience has been um, limited in terms of what I seem to be getting back from the use of creatine. I do have one adult patient who had a lot of muscle pain um, and weakness, and he was on painkillers for the degree of his, his mm -hmm. symptomatology, and I put him on 10 grams a day, and he's had marked improvement in his problems and is no longer on pain medication. Um, I also saw some similar improvement in a young man who, again, had primarily muscle disease. Mm -hmm. I do have one child who was not walking, and her parents swear there's a direct correlation between the use of creatine and her walking. But the, the remainder of my patients are probably, I would say, maybe... 70% of them did not seem to show any appreciable improvement in using creatine um, therapy. So from my perspective, creatine, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not com convinced completely. In regards to its efficacy in mitochondrial disease, I certainly think there's some data out there. I do have some concerns about some of the, um, the side effects of creatine, particularly in the context of long-term and not knowing what it may or may not do to folks. Um, again, unlike CoQ, which is a little, which has been used a little bit longer and, and monitored a little bit more clearly, um, I, I, just, I do have some concerns about it. I wouldn't discourage people from using it. I do start it on patients. In my personal experience, I, because I've seen more improvement in people who have primarily muscle disease, um, I tend to... Um, recommend it more in that subpatient population. Great. Thank you, Dr. Kendall. Can we open the floor for questions now? Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Or would it be all right if we um, took the next 15 minutes and, and let you answer some questions? I'd be happy to do that. There's one thing I forgot to mention, Christy, about um, creatine in particular. There's a, there's a, um, a there's a, I don't know if it's a company or it's probably government regulation or somebody. It's called Consumer Lab. And they do, um, in terms of creatine, if it's a, a Consumer Lab approved creatine product, it's supposed to be a better product because they're there, some of these preparations have a toxic chemical in it, and so when you're purchasing it, if you're purchasing 
it other than the Neogen product, then I would just see if you could find out if it's consumer lab approved. Well, that's it's something I just recently came across, so. Great. And that's all I wanted to ask. Is creatine different? This is going to sound really dumb, but uh, is creatine different than carnitine? Yes, ma'am. Vastly? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Carnitine is, um, is it, although it's also a naturally occurring substance in the body, the, the what carnitine does is it transports fat, long chain fat into the mitochondria for what we call beta oxidation or breakdown. Um, and so that's what it's used for in the body. A lot of people with mitochondrial disease, for, because of nutritional and other issues, have decreased um, carnitine pools, and so their their fat metabolism will be impaired to some degree because of that. So that's often why we put patients on carnitine supplementation. Thank you. And for the other mitococktail components also, I'll just say if you're on mitoaction.org and you use the little search box in the right-hand corner, there's um, a couple articles about the mitococktail that um, definitely don't go into the depth that we've talked about today, but at least give an overview of the components um, that are typically in that cocktail. And that could be useful to you if you search mitococktail on the website. So I'd like to open the floor for questions. So go ahead and um, we'll take questions. Go ahead. I have a question. Uh, this is Joe Herring, and my grandson is the one has the disease. Yes. Is there anything either by by the ubiquinol or or creatine that will help him neurologically? He has terrible seizure disorders. Um, it's I mean, what he's taking now is coenzyme Q10, thiamine, uh, of course, the typical vitamins, mm -hmm. but that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah. it's on seizure medications, but is there anything else in the mitococktail that we're missing? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, the problem that I find, is, as I kind of alluded to earlier, is that the patients that have the most significant neurological problems, including severe seizure disorders and associated developmental delays, they're often those that seem to have the least improvement with a lot of these supplements. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, uh, from a at least a clinical perspective. Now, what it's, you know, what, there may be some changes intracellularly, um, but certainly from a clinical perspective, it's not a vast improvement. Um, I certainly wouldn't say not to try them, and this is what I tell all my families. You know, the basic things that I always use are CoQ, carnitine, and if you've got, like, a complex one defect, um, I use riboflavin. They're kind of my standard pat for oxfos defects. And then, you know, there's other things like the creatine and other supplements. The, the problem is that there's there's – various data out there for these various supplements. And the reason people will have in these articles list them as tier one, tier two, tier three is as you go down those tiers, there's less and less information out there to support its utility across the board in all patients. And so what I typically will recommend is that if, if people want to try various compounds that I don't typically use because I don't, I'm not convinced of their efficacy, I typically re recommend that they use the, the, you know, the doses that are, that are suggested in these various articles and introduce one compound at a time. Um, and then look to see if there's, and, and wait at least two to, to four weeks in between redosing to make sure that there's no side effects or that, the, you know, if there is positive um, 
improvement that at least you know what caused it as opposed to starting 10 different things and then saying you, you're worse or you're better but you don't know what it is. But I can't say with 100% you know, confidence that you should try X, Y, or Z in your, in your grandson just because of, you know, it, most of these things just have limited utility. Well, and the last question I would have is, is there any one of these uh, mitochondrial research centers that is geared towards treatment? I mean, uh, we've been taking them to the mail, but pretty much all, they, all they've told us over all this time is, you know, giving carnitine, coenzyme, cutan, and, you know, that's it. Uh, yeah. Is there any, are there any other places where more is being done, more treatment-oriented? Well, it, it, it depends. I guess it depends on, on what that means. Now, now, certainly if you're talking about clinical treatment trials, well, there's, there's going to be a smattering here or there. I mean, as you, as you know, there's, there's few mitochondrial specialists, so as a result, there's just limitations given that. Um, but I know that the, um, that out in uh, Ohio and in Florida, they're looking, they're doing some studies right now on CoQ. Um, and, um, you know, so, so th there's those kind of things. I certainly have some um, in the next 6 to 12 months, if not 24 months, I'm going to be probably doing some clinical research studies, um, particularly in my patient population here in Atlanta, um, you know, and it will be on my web, my Emory website. But so that's one thing. Um, and, but if the second thing is, you know, are you looking for um, clinicians that um, see patients on a, on a you know, day-to-day, week-to-week basis with a, with a clear specialty of mitochondrial disease and they're, they're doing multi-system screens and they're doing, you know, just day-to-day -day care, then there are some clinicians who do that. I'm one of them. Mark Corson in Boston does that. So it just depends on, on what what you mean by, you know, more involved in clinical care. Well, the main thing is I, is I guess I just don't want to – he's been deteriorating, of course, over his lost uh, – he had a stroke-like episode that took away his ability to walk. Um, you know, he's never been able to speak. Uh, he's on a feeding tube. You know, his his tone has been decreasing. He used to be able to sit up and hold his head up. Now he's no longer able to do either. Um, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, do I have to just sit and watch this, or is there something more I can be doing? Yeah, no, I understand. I think, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest source of frustration for, for both parents as well as physicians who care for these kids and it's, it's um, part of it just goes back to you know limited individuals who are involved in this in in the care of these kids and as such there's limited places that, that do clinical or even basic science research um, Chrissy I, I don't I, I apologize for my ignorance in this regard but do you folks on your website post anything um, like any clinical treatment trials that are being done anywhere that you're aware well, of? We do. We actually, um, and that's, that's a good point, we have a relationship with two biotechs that are doing trials in 2009, mm -hmm. um, and one of those is Fertris Pharma, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, they're working on a compound called resveratrol that is mm -hmm. supposed to improve mitochondrial function. They mm -hmm. have a trial going on with MELAS patients in the UK right now, mm -hmm. and they have FDA approval to start a trial with mito patients in the States in 2009. Mm -hmm. And then the other relationship we have is with Edison Pharma, right. which is um, working on, relevant to today's topic, a 
type of CoQ10 that is, um, you know, along those lines of how you talk about ubiquinol, this is a, you know, a mega CoQ10 that is, you know, works so much better and um, I guess at a lower dose and and so forth. And they actually have just started dosing that in healthy volunteers Mm -hmm. and really are dedicated to improving the symptoms and and the disease for mitochondrial disease patients. Um, mm-hmm. Very interested in that. And I just did an interview with their CEO, Guy, Dr. Guy Miller, mm-hmm. which is also on our website. If you, you can actually see that on the homepage, and you could listen to that. He talks about what it is and why they're going to do it and, and how they're going to find patients for the trials and so forth. So, mm-hmm. but Joe, I would encourage you to go there and, and look at those places. Mm-hmm. And um, and as those trials become open, our whole reason in having a relationship with them is we really believe that those biotechs that are investing literally $45 billion into their course of research for this, that that's, that's where the treatments are going to happen. Right. You know, right. that's where if anybody's going to find um, a way to make progress with the disease, it's going to be in that private biotech industry and because they're going to make money off of it. And that's so we applaud them for doing that and, and hope that we can benefit and have that relationship with them so that when they are ready to open the trials, we can let our group know about it and, and you know, and be involved. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly, I, I totally concur with that. And that's, you know, so any of these, you know, your group, some of the other, you know, um, more prominent mitochondrial groups will have similar things, and that's where you're going to get your information. Again, some researchers, some clinicians may have certain things we want to look at in subpopulations, but it's not going to be, you know, I don't have $45 million. Um, not this week anyway. Um, so, I, you know, my ability to do the things that they're going to be able to do is going to be limited. So they are going to be the ones that are going to make the difference in the end. So we have time for a couple more questions about the CoQ10 and, and creatine. It's been a very informative call, so I want to want to just squeeze a couple more in. Anybody else have a question? I'm curious about the, the investigations that um, Mark Tarnopolsky has done. On creatine? Creatine and, and uh, CoQ10, I believe he did both. Mm-hmm. Well, the the one study from neurology that I, I talked a little bit about early when I was talking about the creatine, um, that was one of Mark's studies. That was a study back in 1999 published in neurology, again, where he, he did, um, you know, but it was a short-term dose, um, dosing of the creatine. So, you know, again, while, I, as I indicated, I think it's it's very encouraging, I don't know um, you know, when you look at something for short term, it's, it's longer term issues where you're talking about side effects and other problems. So, you know, I that's that's all I can really comment on on his particular study. I don't know if you've got any other points that you are, you know, you wanted to discuss or bring up. But no, I just wanted to to, to find out whether that was what you were quoting. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's, this was a study from 1999 in neurology where, he, again, he showed that there was increased strength in patients with neuromuscular disease on creatine. That he paid for personally. That, uh, that I don't know. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that, that part, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Thank you, Dr. Kendall. We have time for one more question. And I would like to ask a question. Um, I'm taking my child to a nutritionist. 
and I took in the um, the Tejan CoQ10 to him, and he told me, um, and he gave me something else for him to take, but he said, he told me it was 270% more absorbable than the Tejan brand, and I'm just wondering if you're familiar with this brand at all. It's called Perk, P-E-R-Q-U-E. P-E-R-Q-U-E. And it's called MitoGuard 100 Plus, and he was saying um, that the delivery method is um, important. It's rice bran oil, Mm -hmm. and he said that's what makes it so much more absorbable. I just wondered if you were familiar with this brand at all. No, I don't have any personal experience with it. Certainly, that certainly doesn't mean that it's not, you know, not doesn't have better efficacy. I think, again, you know, the problem with a lot of these is, is these different various companies produce their data independently. So it's not like they're not peer-reviewed, like tr- traditional medical um, information is, where, you know, you submit your data to um, a, whatever journal and then it's scrutinized by people in the same field as you. Um, and so lots of people can claim lots of things, and it may be true, but it may not be. And I guess the question would be, you know, what what data do they have to show that it's 287% more absorbable and you know, and if it is, like I mentioned earlier about CoQ, does that really matter? What does that translate into from a clinical improvement perspective? Of course, the assumption is the more you absorb, the, the, the better it is, but up to what point? Right, and that's what I was worried about then because I think the studies are all done on TISCON, right, with the dosage? Um, yes. So that's why I'm like, okay, dosage-wise, I need to figure out with the nutritionist and what I should be giving him. Because, right. as you said, really high dosages, dosages can cause the elevated CPK levels. So probably what I should do is go get his CPK levels checked then to make sure that he's not getting too much. I probably would. I mean, it's a routine basis. When I see my patients in follow-up, um, I guess um, CPK is part of what, you know, I screen them for in my multi-system screens. Okay. Along with their lactate and things like that. Okay. Yeah, I guess I – thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So I I am going to wrap up our questions now. I think, Dr. Kendall, again, thank you for sharing your perspective as well as your experience. And and thank you for being very specific about the things like dosages and side effects and brands and so forth because that type of information is what – for the adults and the parents who are helping their children, um, those are the things that, on a daily basis, we look at the bottle and we need to know. Right. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, so thank you for that. I hope you guys will join me in thanking Dr. Kendall for her time um, to, to speak with us today. Yes, thank you. Very much. So thank you. So, so, Dr. Kendall, any any closing comments? Um, no, just thank you all, and um, and I, I'm, I'm happy to, to um, have spent some time and hope hope that it was helpful. Um, the only one other thing that just came to mind as we were talking about Sushkan brand, um, just for folks to be aware of when no matter what supplement they're, they're giving their child, is to always make sure there's another there's not other compounds in there. For example, some of the CoQ, the Tishcon brand CoQs have vitamin E in it, 
and you, they could become you could become toxic from the vitamin E if you just dose yourself on the the CoQ dose and don't look at the vitamin E. So just be mindful of all of that stuff, and and I certainly recognize it's not easy to be in your shoes. And and um, again, I you know I try to approach with my patients a, a more practical approach of. of you know, how do I deal with this on a day-to-day basis, not just giving them a, a handout and say, good luck with all that. So so hopefully I, I relate some of that today and hopefully it will be useful to some of you folks. So thank you for inviting me. No, thank I appreciate you. I'll be, I'll be writing up a summary of um, what we talked about today as well as posting the audio file on the website. And so okay. um, it will be there as a resource um, for your patients, Dr. Kendall, as well as for, um, you know, folks who are, weren't able to attend today or who come into this community in the future. So so thank you for that. You're, you're very welcome. All right. So okay. we'll, stay, we'll stay on the line for another minute, but Dr. Kendall, we, you can go ahead and go, and I'll just bring everybody up to speed on other MitoAction news. But thank okay. you again. Okay, great. Thanks, all. Have a great Bye-bye. day. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. So this is Christy, and um, thank you. I hope that you found that um, informative. You know, it was interesting to me. I had someone comment to me um, last month something like, oh, well, you know, I might be able to get so-and-so to, you know, um, give a talk to the patients, you know, uh, in in exchange for sponsorship or something like that. And and I said, um, oh, well, that's interesting because we we don't pay any of our physicians to do this. And, And I think that's an important point for you guys to know. We're not paying anyone to speak today. All the physicians and the nurses and the pharmacists who have ever spoken as part of this call are doing that because they actually care about this community and they care about you and they want to be able to be as supportive as possible because they do recognize that it's hard. And so, um, and then also from our perspective as a nonprofit, we're putting the resources into what we can do to make sure that we have a website that is on demand for all the information that you need and that we can pay for conference calls like this and we can have people who are available to answer questions and we can have, um, you know, projects and publications that actually make a difference in the community. So rather than paying people (coughs) to do what they already should be doing, which is supporting this group of patients that they're a part of. So um, so it really, if that as meaningful to you as it is to me, it makes you realize that we really are thankful for these folks who are sharing their time. So Christy, thank you very much for getting Dr. Kendall because I find, I mean, she was wonderful. She really was. She seemed very, um, very sharing and very much in touch with the, the patient population. So that was really great to hear. Because she, so many of the doctors, yeah, aren't so much. She is, um, and and I think, um, you know, purposefully the folks that we've had interact with us on these calls, if you look back at at who the speakers have been and who they are, are people who, um, like Dr. Kendall, are are very much um, compassionate about the situation and also very um, realistic in doing the best they can, you know, to help. Right. And so, um, but I do appreciate you saying that. So, um, and, and she was happy to do it. And next month... Actually, I'll be leading our discussion because September brings us to the most exciting mitochondrial disease month of the year, and that's for Mito Awareness Week, which um, we actually started last year 
just as a, we're going to declare the third week of September everywhere, universally, International Mitochondrial Disease Awareness Week. With or without legislative permission, we're moving ahead on that, and <laughs> and, um, and and there we go. So, you know, we'll be printing out postcards that you can, um, you know, get stacks of to put out in your community and, and thinking of other ways that we can really um, make the most of all of us working together that week. And so that will be the topic in September. And then in October, our topic is with um, Kathy Sims, who's a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, um, also very heavily involved with mitochondrial disease patients. And she'll be talking about understanding the genetic inheritance patterns of mitochondrial disease, which I know is befuddles all of us. So, um, so looking ahead to those couple of things, uh, um, you know, is exciting. And if you aren't already getting emails that remind you about meetings and um, other stuff going on with MitoAction, you can, and there's no cost for you to do that. To, quote, join MitoAction, all you need to do is just um, add your email address to our website, and then I'll send you um, things like that are informative as well as reminders about the stuff that's going on. And the only other thing I wanted to mention today is that we do have registration going on right now, thinking ahead for September, for our annual event that is the MitoAction Walk for Mito. Every year, once a year, we really do a fundraising campaign, and that's when we do it. And I want to emphasize that we're not necessarily asking you, the patient community, to turn around and support MitoAction, but we are asking you to get your community of your family, your friends, your churches, your schools involved in supporting you and hence supporting the effort to raise awareness about mitochondrial disease. And, and so the way that we do that is we have a way that you can register to be a part of that event. And if you don't live in a place close enough to Boston or you can't get here for the event, you can actually be a virtual walker, which is kind of fun because then you don't have to actually walk anywhere. <laughs> you can just, um, you know, still send out the information to your friends and family and, um, you know, customize a page. And it, it takes you through it as hopefully as easily as possible. And you can find all that information on the website if you click on the green ribbon down in the lower left-hand corner. And um, as always, I'm happy to field questions and help you guys as much as, um, my, as much as I can. And if you wanted to reach out to me directly, my email is director at mitoaction.org. It's, um, it's sometimes like climbing a mountain uphill an inch at a time, but when you look back over a couple of years, we've, we've come quite a long way. And so, um, you know, so that I, it's in no small way um, not because of the efforts of all the volunteers who are involved. And as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the call, we do are looking for more MITO 411 volunteers. So if you'd like to be part of that, that's our toll-free support line, which when a person calls for support and they leave a message, the volunteers of the month get an automatic email that has that message recorded in the email, and then they um, take turns calling the people back or um, you know, to either answer questions or offer support, and we need some more folks to be volunteers. So if you'd like to do that, you can email Wendy at mito411 at mitoaction.org. She's our volunteer coordinator for that. Anybody have any news or announcements they would like to share? Can, can I ask one quickie question of you? Sure. Mm -hmm. Is there, can you direct me to some place that will give me a 
more um, concrete explanation of the different complexes? That's a great question. You know, and, and um, this is the tail end of the question because somebody hung up. Could you repeat it, please? I, I'm, I just would like directions for a uh, complex that can give me more concrete and from specific information about the different complexes. Okay. Because, I mean, they tell you that your child has a deficit in, you know, whichever one or multiple ones. or, And I'm having a very hard time finding what that really means. Well, I think, and anybody else, feel free to supplement my answer here. So a couple things I'll tell you. First thing I'll tell you is, while it may not have a description of the exact complexes, please be sure to check out the Clinician's Symptom Guide to MITA, which is now available on the website. That's also a free public resource and has a ton of information. Under In MITO action? Yes. Okay. If you look down at the little center box, you'll okay. see a picture of Margaret Clem, and you can get to it from there. Okay. She's um, one of the nurse practitioners that helps okay. you. I mean, if you printed out the whole thing, which we purposely chose not to have you do that, it would be over 200 pages. Okay. Oh, good. Top-to-bottom information, so that's why we didn't make it a printout. Is that, <laughs> is that new? It is. It's new within the last couple weeks. Okay. So, I know I've checked the Mino Action site before for that stuff, but so this is new. That's this great. This is new. So, and you and you need to register to be able to get to it. That's just so that you can accept, you know, our terms of use. It basically says don't be your own doctor. Try to, right. you know, make sure you're talking to other people about this and so forth. But this it is the kind of thing that you can take to your doctor, direct to your, your doctor, too. And it doesn't necessarily talk about the different complexes, and, and here's my answer to that. But, again, anybody feel, in to, feel free to jump in and, and give a different opinion. You could put two people together who both have complex one, and at the end of the day, they're going to be totally different. different. Yeah, completely absolutely. different. Absolutely. So then you could put two people together who have Complex one, two, three, and four, and again, at the end of the day, they're completely different. So, even for example, my daughter has Lee's disease, which means she's supposed to have died already. Well, and we send her next yeah. to another child with Lee's disease, and right, is this um, Kathy talking? Your yeah. son, 17 <laughs> years old, and has right. Lee's disease. Exactly. So, so, we put them next to each other, and, and, and you just, we just aren't in that position, I think, with the disease to exactly understand, um, why it's happening each way, and, and right. uh, you know, Jennifer, who's on the call, who has the, the boys with the eosinophilic disease, is another example of, right. well, where where, is they, where do they fit in? Which category is that? And so we don't, we can't line everybody up in a group and then know, and that's, that's one of the hardest things about getting people to understand mitochondrial disease, right. is that you can't ever describe it appropriately, because you have to have a list of symptoms three pages long in order to cover everybody, right? But are there are there some basic generalities among the different complexes or not? I have never found there to be basic generalities among the complexes. Would any of you guys agree with or disagree with that? There are some websites where the different con uh, the there are pictures or diagrammatic um um portrayals of how the complexes work, if that's what you're looking for. No, because I've seen that. I'm, I'm, but thank you. I'm, I'm really more trying to figure out how that translates into, um, you know, a specific set of, of, of actions or symptoms or 
When you find out, would you let us all know? Yeah, I will. <laughs> you know? I guess, and I guess one reason you may not have found that is because it doesn't you, it, Right, right. I mean, it wouldn't be fair to write those assessments and then you'd have hundreds of people saying, well, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. That doesn't make sense. Exactly. So you, you just can't. So that really just doesn't. It really just doesn't exist. Right. And, and it doesn't necessarily indicate just as we're finding with even some of the more um, severe diagnos diagnostic categories, you know, like Lee's and MELOS, it doesn't necessarily indicate um, quality of life, Correct. quantity of life. It, you, you, there's no predictor of that, and, and, and that, I don't know. Yeah, I know. That makes it so hard. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> I guess I guess the way that um that I look at it, Kathy, and and again, other folks feel free to jump in and share your opinion. But you know, um, I was told that my daughter wouldn't live, right. and it was only after I got over that and decided that they were wrong right. that I was able to give her the best quality of life and quantity of life that I possibly could. Absolutely. So maybe you don't want to know exactly exactly how long yeah. you know what's exactly. what's going to happen to you. Well, so none you know. of us really want to know exactly how long we have. You know. So, um, so I mean, again, other people, that's just my opinion. Feel free to, to jump in. But I think it's a good question, but no, I don't think there's necessarily okay. a correlation. I did, I did this. This is Jennifer with the three boys. And I did just want to jump in and say thanks so much for the clinician guide because um, I'm just exhausted with already having researched another disease for three years. And that guide has been the most useful thing that I've found so far and all in one place and very easy to read and it's perfect for me to give to our pediatrician who is just at a loss of what to do with our kids. So I just wanted to say thanks a lot and if you haven't looked at it, go look at it because it's very, very, very useful. I'm going to right now. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. Thank you, Jennifer, because, you know, um, Dr. Corson and Margaret, who have both been speakers before, but they're both at Tufts and have been working together, they actually worked with Dr. Kendall, who was on the call today like 20 years ago when they all started the mitochondrial program at Children's in Boston, which was really a, a groundbreaking um, thing to do to have a mitochondrial program, you know. Imagine how groundbreaking it would be now and imagine that 20 years ago. Okay. So um, it's taken them the last three years to write this and to compile information and to pull as many references when possible and um, and put that all together and to compile their experience so that they're not just talking to the scientific end of the disease, but they're actually talking about the people and the way that they're affected and what to do about it. And that's really the difference, I think, because there are other primary care physicians' guides, if you will, about the disease, but they talk about the genetics and the biochemistry right. and and you know what when your child is in pain or when you as an adult have a migraine for days on end the biochemistry is not going to be <laughs> useful to you you know as as understanding the triggers and what to do about it and so um this Can is I ask you something about this guide um because this is a question i i wanted to get in uh during the, the conference but i didn't well, we always talk about the, the different kinds of chemical, you know, treatments for mitochondrial disease. And once you're diagnosed, all the supplements and vitamins I'm talking about, are there any kind of standardized approaches that doctors use, like screens? We, we mentioned that 
word. When you go in for a checkup or an appointment, I mean, are there various blood level tests that are done to see if you're deficient in certain areas so that specific problems can be addressed if you have your CoQ10 level is low, I mean, you would be told to increase, you know, are there screens that, uh, is that contained at all? Is that Bob talking? Is that Bob? Yes, yeah. So, Bob, that's a great question, you know, um, I don't know the answer to that. My guess is that the way for me to find out that answer would be to say to the, the doctors and nurses that we have a relationship with, um, to say, okay, Tell me what you do on a typical, you know, yearly workup for right. these patients. And they probably and all my doctor have never, a list. Since I've been diagnosed, I've never had that kind of uh, an approach to, you know, being treated. I mean, this is in the realm of treatment and... And not that's diagnosis. Not, you know, so, so, Bob, that's a great question, and, and it's not directly addressed in the guide, although symptom to symptom some of the things are addressed, but then that's kind of a um, very roundabout way to, to get it. I totally understand what you're asking. I think it's a great question, and I'll certainly put that question out to um, our medical advisory committee and, and ask about, you know, let's get a comp compilation of the annual workup, if you will. So they right, kind of know right. what you're looking for, and, and we can add that. That's the great thing about having these like things. Why would, I, I mean, just, just to elaborate on this um, just a second, uh, why would someone want to increase their CoQ10? I mean, why should they necessarily, without any knowledge, whether you're knowing your blood level is deficient or it's, maybe it's not? Hmm. So, I mean, I don't know if you're, if that's a rhetorical question or if you want to ask my opinion. <laughs> um, you know, but I also think from what I heard Dr. Kendall talking about is that, you know, so much of it is related to, well, I didn't experience any relief, so I'm going to keep trying X, Y, and then Z, right, and try to attack right. the symptoms as they come. But, um, but I really like your idea, and so I actually will pursue that, Bob, because I think that what I was going to say is that. the beauty of the website is that that's what helps us. We chose not to print this and then send it around, A, because that's very expensive and we weren't really sure that was the best way to disseminate the information, and B, because we can keep it completely up to date if we have it on the website. So, um, so thanks for that idea. I would be very interested in that. Um, Could come up with. Um, to, to build on that a little bit, does the um, guide posted on the website also include a standard for diagnosis? You know, I, um, is, that, is that MJ talking? This is MJ in Brooklyn. Yeah. Hi, MJ. Um, I don't think that everyone agrees. Yeah. And says no. Okay. Because I think that, you know, I wish that, I often wish because I get questions about this a lot. Yeah. Do I go muscle biopsy? Do I go frozen? Do I go right. CSF? Do I right. go blood? Right. And, and there's, I don't think everybody agrees. I think it depends on who you're asking. And, um, and, and I have not really taken the position of one camp versus another because a lot of physicians that I really respect have totally different opinions. You know, I've talked to um, a lot of um, geneticists and biochemists and other people about this, and um, 
some of the people that I've talked to do feel that we may be at a point where it would be possible for doctors in the field to get together and start to cobble together some standards, both on diagnosis and the kind of um, annual workup that Bob is talking about, which is, it's just so central to what happens to these patients once you diagnose them. Um, and um, I'm really wondering if um, there's anything that we can do to help facilitate that, because I have talked to doctors who have said, yep, we need it, yep, it's time. Um, and it seems, to me, it seems to me that the next step is, okay, let's make it happen. And I'd be very interested in finding out what it would cost to make that happen and um, working on that. Very interesting idea. So, again, I'm, I'm taking notes as we're talking, and, uh, and I'll certainly bring these things up. There's also a fellow that's at Harvard here in Boston named Vamsi Musa. Say it again, um, please. Vamsi, V-A-M-S-I. V as in Victor? Right. Vamsi Musa. There's a um, YouTube video of him speaking that you can link to off the website, or you could go to youtube.com slash mitoaction. He's a he's not a, a clinician. He doesn't see patients, but he's very involved in researching the diagnostic process and diagnostic criteria and diagnostic methods um, necessary to be able to actually get a specific data as possible about mitochondrial disease. And, really? And uh, I, you know, he might be a great person to have as a speaker. We we already have our plans from now through December, but um, as I look ahead to 2009, I'll certainly um, engage with him and see if he would, um, he's, he's a nice guy and he's a young young guy, but really a leader in the field. Um, when you talk to companies like Sertris and Edison, who are also leaders in the, in the biotech side, they all know him. Great. And, um, and I would, I'll pursue having him um, talk to us maybe in January and, uh, you know, okay. maybe I should ask him some of those questions, okay. too. And if MitoAction doesn't find that it's in its current plan or budget to work on something like this, um, if it would be possible uh, for one of us to go out and work on getting that money uh, to do that, either through MitoAction or in cooperation with MitoAction, that is the way that other diseases are basically managed. The doctors in the field get together and talk about, you know, how we diagnose it, how we treat it, how we know what we're looking at, what we should and shouldn't do about it, and they agree upon it, and it is promulgated and published, and that becomes the standard that other doctors have to follow. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something that, um, you know, people have talked to me about and I've heard people talking about for over 10 years. Um, but it seems to me that we're now at a point where there are enough people working on it and enough patients getting diagnosed that even if it can't be done in the next year, that starting to work on making it happen will make it happen sooner or later. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. And I think that um, it's, it's definitely, you know, something that I'm going to take back and um, okay. and get their opinion about. I'm, I'm excited to hear what their perspective is. When I Me too. A group of 12 physicians who all, you know, have mitochondrial disease patients is one of their predominant populations. So I'm excited to hear what they say. So um, if I get an answer by when our next meeting in September, I'll, I'll certainly, we'll, we'll report on it. Sure, you know? thank so, you. Great.
Thank you. Uh, any, uh, you thank you. Any other um, news or announcements that people would like to share? I would like to uh, add that I really appreciate what you said about your daughter and what you did about her diagnosis because um, I think it's key. It's what you decide you're going to do about it. And um, I did the same thing that you did for myself. Um, when I decided not to accept what was a death sentence that was supposed to have taken place six years ago, um, everything changed. And you know, it's, it's hard. I, I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time with families. I mean, there's a family here at Mass General who, who um, she's an adult patient who has knee loss, and she's in the last days of her life this week, and I've spent a lot of time with the family over the last six weeks because they're here. And, and you know, I always have in the back of my mind mm. the uncertain future. Yes. But I also have in the present of my mind how much I can manage that, and I, I really can't. And so, um, you know, as for my personal family and our perspective, and, and I think you see a lot of this in the tone of what we try to do when we support our community through MitoAction is, is to make that choice to, to take, to seize that quality of life and to, you know, not necessarily let what 10 years ago was published in the literature dictate what's going to happen for you. And um, and that's really what it comes down to because 10 years ago what was published in literature was is a lot different than I think even what the understanding is and what we're on the cusp of right now. Um, so, but thank you for that. No, oh, thank um, you. So, I guess my only other announcement is um, that, you know, next month we'll be getting together um, again and I um, encourage you guys to go to the website and spend some time looking at um, the walk as well as that clinician's guide and, you know, all of the summaries as well as audio files to these meetings are within the blog section of the website. So if you if you think of a question that you're looking for in particular, the search tool on the website works really well. Um, or if you go in the blog and browse around there, the most recent posts are on the home page. Once you click on any of those, you'll get into the blog and you'll see all the categories. And, um, and that's a, a hidden wealth of information because really the, the topics from the last year have all have a very complete summary. And so, um, you know, lots of good information there. I thank you guys so much for thank being you, here today. And, thank um, you. you know, for, for this and I'll, um, turn around and post that file hopefully this afternoon and uh, see you guys again in September. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.